I go in and I bravely excavate the ham and, and it's sort of, you know, covered in this like white fluff and I brush it off of the outside and then cut off a thick slice of the exposed side and it's perfectly good underneath. Listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm editor in chief Matt Rodbard here with senior editor Anna Hazel. On today's show, I'm talking to food and spirits writer Tammy Teclamerium. She's written for Wirecutter, Sever, Eater, and Taste. She's also a contributing writer at Gawker, where she recently made a case for why you should buy a whole cured ham from Costco. I had the chance to ask Tammy about some very underrated holiday drinks and bottles to bring to holiday parties. Later on the show, Matt and I dive deep into the topic of non-alcoholic drinks, all of the sodas, seltzers, bitters, and juices that are making waves right now. But first, here's me talking to Tammy. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Tammy. Thank you, Anna. I'm really excited to be here. You recently dropped a bit of a ham bomb on the internet. (laughs) You wrote a story for Gawker um, where you're a contributing writer about why it's awesome to just own a whole leg of cured ham. Not like deli-style ham, but more of like a kind of prosciutto-style salt-cured ham. Talk us through, like, sort of why you decided to buy a ham to keep at home. This was a Hamon Serrano that I ended up with, but I had been contemplating a few different hams, uh, maybe a country ham. I was planning to shop around, but I ended up with a Hamon Serrano kit that apparently is a very popular holiday item at Costco. Um, because a lot of people commented that they had been thinking about it or had always been tempted by it, but had never decided to go for it. So I went for it. Um, And the reason why um, came kind of out of a desire to, one, be prepared, you know, just having experienced the grocery shortages and panic of the beginning of the pandemic, you know. I I don't know if it's it's changed me, uh, but... You know, the thought of having this large piece of meat that, you know, wouldn't need to be in the fridge, uh, but like that I could keep sort of feeding myself from for months just sounded really comforting. It's a safeguard against ham delays, basically, in the supply chain. I mean, there's just like been this ongoing message of scarcity, and I guess it finally took a toll on me. Um, But besides that, I think that having a ham is really awesome. And it's also compared to the cost of sliced ham at, you know, DiPaolo's or whatever specialty grocery store where I usually would get it, you know, that's going to cost $20 to $30 a pound depending on the age, quality, source of the ham, that kind of thing. But a whole ham, mine cost $100 Um, country hams, you know, start even less, like at around 70. Um, And then you can get more expensive hams, but it's just, you know, more economical uh, as long as you really like ham, which I do, thankfully. Um, And, you know, the idea was that I wouldn't mind 
investing and committing to this food because it's just it's really simple and really elemental. It's the kind of thing where I can have a really simple dinner with whatever scraps of cheese are in my fridge and cut up a couple of slices of ham and pour a glass of wine and I can feel, you know, not only satisfied but also feel like, you know, the food that I had isn't compromising or like isn't good enough for whatever nice thing I want to drink. Um, it's just like a really great high quality thing that's always around. I also want to talk about the fact that I think a lot of people don't realize that when you buy a whole leg of ham, you don't actually have to keep it in the refrigerator the way you would if you were just buying slices from the grocery store. Yeah, um, I've been to your house and seen that you keep your ham in the foyer. <laughs> Um, what's the best like condition to keep a whole ham under? Yeah, so I mean, partially this was in the interest of keeping the ham away from my dog Buffer, um, who, although she is a very, very good girl, I did not want to put her in the position of temptation that a, a whole ham leg might um, might cause. <laughs> So there was that. And then there was also um, just the idea of temperature control. Um, and, you know, because when the heat's on in my house, you know, some rooms can be 80 degrees, like some rooms are 50 degrees. You want to find a place that's sort of dry, not really exposed to the elements, and then cool. Uh, the other thing that I did, and this was just more because I was putting it in a foyer, uh, is I keep my ha- cam stand with the ham on it in a large cooler uh, because the high sides sort of will keep any, like, you keep it from attracting, like, rodents or something. And then I lightly cover it with a cheesecloth to sort of keep the essence in but also let air flow freely around it. Um, so, yeah, you can, you, you should, in fact, keep a ham out room temperature, not refrigerated, as long as it's on the bone. Um, as long as it's on the bone, it's still technically curing. Um, but once you remove the bone, that's when you have to keep it refrigerated. Whoa. I never thought of the bone as being like part of the preservation. Yeah, I'm I'm not I, I didn't really get the reason. I don't know if it's just because it's so integral to, you know, just preventing air from getting in there. Um, but yeah, I've had several ups and downs uh, with the ham as well. So, you know, (laughs) I'll sometimes eat it a couple days in a row, but then sometimes I just forget about it for a while. And especially if it had rained during that time period or just, you know, it had been a little bit, it it can get a little furry. It can get a little... (laughs) They they, they say it's penicillin. I believe them because I go in and I bravely excavate the ham and and it's sort of you know covered in this like white fluff and I brush it off of the outside you know the tougher skin area with some salt and uh, like oiled down paper towel which is what the the paper that came with the kit said to do and then cut off a thick slice of the exposed side and it's perfectly good underneath it's like it's astonishing I, I was surprised the first time I did it but I've eaten from it so many times since then that I've just learned to, you know, trust the process. Um, I love that you're making ham sound scary. (laughs) (laughs) 
the well, fur, I mean, yeah, wow. That's going to be hard for a lot of home ham owners to get over. I mean, it's gutsy, but the thing is, you know, if you watch the hams being made, I'm sure that they they go through some unsightly stages. It's just that that's not the picture that you're going to see at Despagna. Like, I, I remember eating charcuterie in France. Like, the, the saucisson sec there is is much funkier, and, and it really is, like, much more affected by mold. Like, there's, like, thick white mold on the outside, and you really taste it in this in the saucisson there. And um, that's that's... Like when, like when I would taste the the hamon that I had after like doing that, like I was like really getting like that kind of like flavor where it's just like it is giving it like a very distinctive flavor, and you just you can't have these complex preserved foods without these infiltrators. They're our friends. Mold is our friend. <laughs> Ham is one of the most recent topics you've written about for Gawker. You've also written about why duck is a superior bird to chicken for eating um, and why mocha pots are bullshit, right? What do you have against mocha pots? What do I have against mocha pots? Um, You know, I think that mocha pots make a very specific kind of product and it is coffee that is thick and concentrated. And I think that those are qualities that people like enough because it goes very well with milk and they like them enough to forego the fact that your coffee tastes absolutely burned. It's it's a little bit bitter, it's, it's just cooked. It's this kind of cooked, preserved flavor of coffee and it's the same flavor that you would get from drinking like a canned espresso drink or like any kind of heat treated coffee it just loses its freshness and its integrity and that's not a big deal if you're not using very good coffee you know if your espresso comes pre-ground in a brick it's there's not much that you're preserving in the first place but for people to think that they're making excellent coffee in a mocha pot is just misguided. And, you know, it hurts to hear the message when your routine is disrupted. Uh, it's not, it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear. But I think that it's indisputable once you open up your heart to the possibility that you've been wrong. Especially because I feel like mocha pots have sort of a little bit of like a fancy European aesthetic to them where people think they're sort of like drinking a sophisticated espresso. I mean, here's the thing, like coffee in Europe is not really that good either. So, uh, I mean, I think like a lot of specialty coffee is known for coming from Scandinavia, um, but the way that Americans experience coffee, especially like, you know, with roasting culture, the way that that is pervasive here, you really can't find that kind of quality and that kind of variety in Europe or in Italy. Like you just don't see small roasters like that. And people see coffee very much as like this, this 
this monolith, this thing that's like, if it's always the same, that's fine. Um, so I wouldn't really look to, you know, the European ideal, like, you know, this like romantic little machine or whatever, um, as, as the best way to make coffee. It's also, you know, cultural, you know, I'm Eritrean and when you make coffee for like a coffee ceremony, they grind the beans and they boil them in a clay pot with water. And then you let the beans kind of like sink to the bottom and then you pour off this relatively clarified coffee from the top. And that's another like style of cooked coffee or Turkish coffee um, where it's boiled and then brought down. You know, I'm not going to say that like those things are bad, but also those coffee methods haven't been pervasive in the culture as like this sort of like romantic, like amazing way to make better coffee. There's not really anything to like drag about it, but you see somebody with a mocha pot and they're, you know, they, they're so pleased about it. You just want to help them. <laughs> <laughs> On the topic of kind of like people glorifying European stuff as the best, we're cruising into champagne season. You know, you, you go to a New Year's party and everyone shows up with like the same bottle of bubbly wine that you know, they just sell at whatever the nearest wine store is. You have a lot of parties. I've been to your parties. You always have really fun, exciting drinks. If you're showing up at someone's door on New Year's, what's something that you would bring? You know, you're a wine and spirits writer. What's something that you would bring to sort of like spark a little surprise, a little intrigue? Um, I think New Year's is a really interesting holiday for this. Um, so I used to work at Astor Wines and Spirits, which is a really big store in um, Manhattan. And uh, when you work, when you sell wine and spirits retail, you work through the holidays. So I would always work on New Year's Eve, which is one of the busiest days of the year. And they basically station us at all of the different sections so that there's always somebody to help. And for a year or so, I was in charge of the sake section. And so I was working the sake section New Year's Eve, um, my first year. And it was shocking how many people were buying sake. And not just as, you know, a matter of like filling in some kind of blank or because they were eating sushi, but they were buying the really, really good sake. The Daiginjos and Junmai Daiginjos that are $100 to $150. And these are really special, um, very like live, fruity, like texturally interesting, salty sakes. Um, and I would ask people, you know, why are you choosing sake? Um, just out of curiosity. And they would say, oh, you know, I don't really like champagne and this is still really special. And it's true. And the other really great thing that you almost always get with sakes at this level is that the packaging is gorgeous and it's it's never just you know this like one kind of bottle like it's it, they have hand-blown bottles different colored bottles ribbons stickers like gilded labels they're they're all just like very intricate and then you know for something that people don't always think to drink um, or like don't usually order at the high end uh, it can really be a discovery um, so if I wanted to surprise somebody or, you know, or like really give them something special, I'd bring that. Um, but, you know, it's definitely like a hundred dollar type proposition. That's such a good tip. I love that. 
when you're working at a wine store like Aster, how do you even, I mean, like the demand for sparkling wine must be so crazy around the holidays. Do you just have like extra refrigerators in the basement to keep things cold? Like how do you even deal with how many people are just like stopping in to buy Prosecco? Yeah, um, I can't remember if they were just backing up cases um, because the thing is also like the store is just packed with product everywhere. Um, so I mean, I mean, I think they, they people just restock constantly. Uh, it's just a matter of like having somebody assigned to just keep like these high turnover products uh, available and in the fridge. They have a lot of fridge space. Yeah, and um, you know, like people are buying other other chill drinks as well. So it was never, it was never that crazy. I want to talk about cocktails too for entertaining because I think when people think about like winter entertaining, they pretty quickly go to the idea of punch. Um, it seems like sort of the default holiday drink. Um, but what what are some of your favorite cocktails? Or like batch drinks to make when you have people over. I really like Dave Arnold's technique. Dave Arnold, ex Booker and Dax, ex ex Conditions guy. Do we need to introduce him more? I don't know. People can Google Dave yeah. Ar- Arnold cocktail guy. Cocktail guy. Everybody, every bartender's favorite bartender. Um, he has a technique that I love. Um, for batching cocktails, which um, he does with a Manhattan, um, where you basically mix the vermouth and the whiskey with a portion of water, and then you bottle it and freeze it. And then you can serve them straight from the freezer, uh, and they're already perfectly diluted as though you stirred each drink up with an ice cube to order. So, like, if you're just trying to have, like, a classy kind of classic vibe. I would recommend something like that. Yeah, for me personally, I do always just try to take it to the next level. Um, Speaking of parties at my house, my 29th birthday was a Mai Tai tie-dye birthday party, and I made almond orgeat uh, from like almond milk and sugar myself and you know had a solera of rum um, so I just asked all of my guests to bring a bottle of rum and I had this you know Carlo Rossi wine jug and I was just putting in every bottle of rum because typically <laughs> my ties are the recipe will have five different kinds of rum in it because you're trying to like achieve this like crazy balance. Solera um, is like a really fancy nice way of describing a Carlo Rossi jug full of every rum that all of your friends showed up with. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's a good. Spin. They were fancy rums too. Uh, it was it was nice because it. And then uh, at the end of the party, I had half a jug of this like mystery rum, and I was just making like my ties for the next you know two weeks. Uh, great way to kick off being twenty nine. Yeah, that was fun. And then like you know, I had somebody on on lime squeezing duty. But the thing is, yeah, you don't want to you don't want to have to work too hard either. I don't know. I mean, and then it's just like. What about the basics? Is this, I think this drink might be called a Cape Cod, uh, or it's just, it's just cranberry vodka and uh, maybe some kind of, or maybe it's cranberry and gin. I don't know. You know, I just like just really classic, like 
winter flavors because honestly during the holidays there's also going to be a lot of food uh there's like a lot of options this is probably not somebody's first party uh and maybe it's not always about you know having the most unique details but just having enough alcohol definitely while we're talking about drinks I just want to mention Tammy is the first podcast guest in the whole history of the podcast to basically present me with like a green room writer. She demanded that if she was going to be on the show, I present her with one sugar-free Red Bull upon her arrival in the studio. (laughs) Why Red Bull when you are um, clearly into coffee, you appreciate good coffee? Well, first, um, thank you for calling me out. It's fine. (laughs) It Um, needed to be said. Someone (laughs) needed to call you out. I, you know, I just thought that that was the treatment that I could expect at Taste. And you got me the Red Bull, so it was. I am actually getting back into Red Bull. I never really had uh, a Red Bull phase um, early on. I I think, yeah, I've always been a coffee person. But I, I had an inkling that because I'm not in the habit of leaving the house to go to Manhattan at this time of day, that I would probably be lagging um, on my way over here and wouldn't have a chance to make my typical um, five-minute pour-over process this morning. And I was right. It's hard when you care about what your coffee tastes like to drink any old cup of coffee. Yeah. I, I I wasn't sure, you know... What part, what part, what, what options I would find in this part of town, um, where, you know, which is basically the Wild West to me, you know, I was just like, oh God, like I, I would, I would, I would rather drink a Red Bull than drink Starbucks for sure. Uh, I would rather drink a Red Bull than drink La Colombe. Yeah. It's just, it's hard for me to find a cup of coffee that I'm going to want in the wild. It all comes back to your coffee snobbery, to your, sorry, your (laughs) superior taste in coffee. Yeah, you know, I've been drinking coffee since I was a tiny kid. Uh, so I'm allowed a little bit of, of, you know, critique. I've noticed recently you've been posting a ton of TikTok food content on Instagram and Twitter. I don't really watch that much TikTok, so I'm not in this whole TikTok food world. What do you love about watching people cook on TikTok? Well, for one thing... The TikTok numbers are so enlightening because, you know, in regular sort of sanctioned food media where people are chosen to do videos, uh, like you see, you know, maybe like one outlet will have a video that gets a million views and that's really, really high. On TikTok, you know, videos are getting millions and millions and millions of likes and views and all of this interaction and it's people who never had to ask for permission or approval or you know guidance on like making these things they are just making their food and sharing it with the world and people are like you know talking about in the comments so I think that there is just a real democracy to what goes on there Um, I think it's still kind of like up in the air what the benefit is for the creators like I don't really know what TikTok pays but I think compared to at least launching yourself um, especially if you have the kind of like output where you have a lot of recipes that you're 
you know sharing you it's 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 a lot easier to get a following and like really make a significant body of work um especially because it's so easy to consume everything you know everything the maximum length of a video is only going to be three minutes whereas people who make videos for youtube you know those are much longer you get longer intros all of this stuff so tiktok is really a great way for all kinds of cooks to become known and for their recipes to be shared. I actually wanted to shout out uh, one of my favorite creators who uh, I've only been following for, you know, a couple of months, but it looks like he's gotten 50,000 more followers since I started following him. His name is Akram Cooks, and that's Akram underscore Cooks. Um, but he is, he cooks uh, Yemeni food, which is so interesting to me because I've always thought of Yemeni food as uh, maybe like 50% of what Eritrean food is, but it's also still not that well known to me. So he cooks these dishes that seem so familiar to me at first, and then they diverge in ways that I'm not expecting. And I'm just, and, and I've never, and I've never seen these recipes before either. Like they are you know, it's a type of cuisine that is not really discussed, hasn't really been featured anywhere, or, you know, gets, you know, discussed in a short way, but it's not as thorough as what he's doing. And, you know, he's got, you know, whatever, 40, 50 videos on his page. Uh, and it's a really complete introduction to this cuisine. Also, his food looks amazing definitely check him out. That's awesome. And that's the kind of video content you're not really going to find on like, you know, Bon Appetit cooking channel or some of these other popular YouTube channels. It's a way for people to not have to um, deal with the requirements or, you know, just like the hoops of, of being in, you know, print media or like web media. And you think about all of those things, you know, speaking English, uh, being able to like pass an edit test, you know, knowing the right people, being in the right place. Like there are grandmothers making TikToks in like remote villages with millions of views. And it's it's just so much more exciting. And uh, just, yeah, I, I find it hard to to watch other food videos at this point. <laughs> Also, some of the lack of like, you know, like high production value feels really candid and like sort of intimate. Like you're it feels like you're sort of cooking along with someone while you're watching. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes you see recipes without ingredients listed. You're just watching an edited take of somebody cooking something and you, you know, just identify what they're doing and you sort of just like clock it and oftentimes there will be no recipe there is no accompanying blog there is no like place to get the information and so it's it's a lot of times it's just like a very uh visceral way of learning sometimes there's like even some suspense built in too you watch someone doing um something the way you would and then there's kind of like a turn and you're like oh god what are they gonna do next yeah, and that just speaks to the the true randomness of it all. Like you never know what you're going to get at the beginning of a video, you at the end of a video, you might not know where somebody's from. Um, you know, but you can sort of like, you know, I, I that's my favorite thing. Like you, you see their surroundings and you're like, 
oh, well, you know, they're in a cabin. It's somewhere cold. They're cooking a meat that is much darker than the meats that I'm used to seeing. So what do I think this meat is? And like, and at the end, yeah, you still you still don't know what the meat is. Like they're they're talking about it in the comments, but uh, nobody is sure. Um, and and I mean, it's it's like these these types of cooking videos are valid too. You know, just because everybody got used to having every single ingredient measured down to the teaspoon uh, for so many years, like doesn't mean that that is the only way that that you know this this type of media can thrive. Um, and they're really proving that they, they can get a lot of attention without having to do all of these like really, you know, standard that we think of like media tricks. Are you making your own TikToks at all? I've tried. I'm working on it. But TikTok is a hard art to master. I, I, I consider myself an Instagram pro, but I will say that Instagram is like Photoshop and TikTok is like After Effects. And there are so many effects on TikTok that you can use to your advantage or can be a distraction. I think, like, the hard thing for me is queuing up music uh, and then, you know, doing voice over the music. But, you know, I make it hard on myself because I'm a perfectionist. I think that there are you – could, you could definitely just, you know, upload a raw video with nothing on it and get millions of likes. Uh, <laughs> but for me, if if I'm going to pursue TikTok more seriously, I, I think that I'm going to want to increase the production values, um, you know, in my own life. The people who are good at TikTok make it look really easy, I'll have to say. They do. And I mean, they're prolific, too, you know. So it's like once once you know, then it's just a muscle, you know. But, I, I you know, I'm never going to be, you know, I'm, I don't want to say never, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to just talk into the camera or something. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's it's interesting because you really aren't seeing that much crossover between established food people and TikTok yet, or it's sort of beginning to start. But then you have to wonder, you know, it's it's interesting because their numbers aren't what you might expect based on the audiences that already exist for these people. But that's just because they might not be, you know, TikTok material or, you know, it's just it's just like another good video of someone baking bread. But, you know, when you're compete when you're competing with all of these other people who are making bread, who maybe have a little bit more insight into what makes a good TikTok um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to go as far. Well, Tammy, thank you so much for being on the Taste Podcast. I have so many good ideas for what to drink and um, what to eat, which is ham this holiday <laughs> season. I will definitely be eating ham. Um, thank you for having me, and thank you for the Red Bull. So, Anna, this time of year, there's always a lot of talk about drinks, winter cocktails, winter beers, and figuring out which bottle of bubbly to buy for for New Year's Eve. Yes, it's on everyone's mind. But also, like, whenever I have a party, one of my first questions is, like, what are the non-drinkers going to drink? Right. And I am one of those non-drinkers. And I have to say that oftentimes... <sighs> We're getting into the NA cocktail conversation right now. Let's just go for it, okay? Let's just go for it. 
I love conviviality. I love celebrating with food and drink. Cooking is a, a big part about my love of food is is celebrating with people. It's not. It sounds corny, but it's true. So when you extract alcohol from the celebratory drink, oftentimes the host or the bar or the restaurant is trying to make up for the booze with something else. And in my opinion, that something else is often sugar. That's so true. It's like reverting to sort of a kid drink mentality. And I have like a lot of different friends who fall into different camps here. But how do you feel about kind of like what is known as the mocktail or the non-alcoholic cocktail. <laughs> the NA cocktail, <laughs> the soft drink. We've had we've had a lot of talk mm-hmm. about that. I feel like, as I said, they're very sweet. Oftentimes, especially when you order them at restaurants, they'll like throw some pear juice in there, uh, or they'll throw some some kind of simple syrup that's been infused with like berries or herbs or whatever. And oftentimes, it's sugar that has um, the, the is like the thread that runs through it. And to me, if you're drinking that much sugar before a large meal, if it's like at a restaurant, your your first course is a cocktail, I feel kind of gross. Yeah. And especially if you're like, you know, if you're trying to be sipping on something throughout an evening, you know, if you're at a, at a dinner or a party or at a family dinner for like four hours, that is a lot of sugar. It's a lot when you start getting them served to you yeah, one by one. I mean, I oftentimes go at restaurants with water or sparkling water because I'm I'm looking forward to the meal and I don't need that 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 extra hit in the in the beginning. I love when my my guests or my my wife tomorrow orders a glass of wine and enjoys and I love making cocktails for folks but for me it's it's like usually water, maybe a few other things we'll get to in a little bit but so, okay, I've been to a few restaurants lately that have actual whole sections of the menu dedicated to non-alcoholic cocktails. It's kind of cool. Like, I went to Kamika um, on the Lower East Side nice. the other night. Nice, And they have a whole cocktail menu that's non-alcoholic. A lot of interesting flavors coming into play. Some, even some, like, savory, salty things. So I was wondering, like, have you had a really good N.A. cocktail at a restaurant or bar? I had to think about uh, NA cocktail experience. And, you know, Julia Bainbridge wrote a really cool book called Good Drinks. And I think in there she writes a lot about this this struggle that I'm speaking of. And, and there's some cool recipes in there. John DeBerry, I've interviewed him. And he's, he's he makes some great NA drinks um, at PDT or wherever he's working. The one that comes to mind, I was out with with, with our crew. Remember we went out with the, the Punch crew, our, our former colleagues at Punch. And I, we went to Katana Kitten in the village, and I had a really good NA drink there. I don't remember what it was, but it was bitter. And that's definitely a thread that we'll get to later, the bitterness. How about you, Anna? Do you feel like you're you're seeing any NA drinks? Are you ever drinking NA drinks yourself? Every once in a while when I just don't really particularly feel like drinking. And I'm, I always do kind of look for like a little bit of a bitter note because – it's something that's harder to get tired of if you're sipping over the course of a few hours. Um, there are like obviously times when you're hosting a dinner, like you're making a big, you know, holiday meal, and making an actual cocktail is just like can be so time consuming, so much effort. So yeah, like there are all these cool canned drinks these days too. Like sometimes, you know, you just buy a 12 pack of LaCroix and call it a day. But like, there's some kind of interesting like sodas and ready to drink things popping up. Totally. I'm Team Spindrift, just FYI. 
Oh, yeah. LaCroix, LaCroix is not really in my fridge. Just going to say that. Uh, But honestly, Anna, you bring up a really good point about um, the ready-to-drink market, RTDs, when it comes to um, NA. And we wrote a story uh, about a year ago. um, Emily Timberlake wrote it. Amazing writer, uh, former editor at Ten Speed Press, focused in the uh, in the in the drinks world, and and has edited some of the best drinks books in publishing. Um, but really, when when we when I signed the story, I was kind of coming at it as a non booze guy, and I was like, okay, Emily, let's talk about interesting sodas. That's what we called it, and we'll definitely link to this this story in the show notes of of interesting sodas. One thing that I thought was really fun is she kind of gets at the idea of like a host gift like showing up with a fancy soda which is really nice little contribution you can make if someone's having you over it's really fun and, and I've, I've tried to do that myself and, and I'll speak about a few brands I like it's funny how sometimes they land and sometimes they don't I was at a pool party this summer and I brought um, a Casamari club which I'll talk about and 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 it didn't go so well nobody drank it except for me <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some products. I feel like this is like what we want to do here on the Taste Podcast, give some some picks for our, read- our listeners. How about that? Yeah. What should people be like ordering online before the holidays or seeking out in their local beverage distributor, grocery store, et cetera? Great question. I really love this brand Camino, K-I-M-I-N-O. Um, I like to describe them as handcrafted sparkling juices. They're definitely not so sweet, but ju- they're like just perfectly sweet enough. It's made with water from the Hugo or Haigo Mountains in the Kans- Kansai region of Japan. Um, and the flavors are cool. They're like the things I want to be drinking. Uh, I love their yuzu, the ume, which is a plum, and their ringo, which is more of a tart apple. And Emily wrote this really cool line in the piece, and I still agree with it. Camino sodas tasted like unfiltered natural wine, but in an N.A. form. It's really cool. Yeah, I actually, as soon as she wrote this piece, I started seeing Camino pop up in my grocery store. And it's really true. Like, it has really, like, nice tartness, not overbearingly sweet, like a really kind of balanced sip. Love that. And it, it feels really nice in the hand. They've got this beautiful bottle design. I think I found my first bottle a few years back at Air One Market in Los Angeles. Cool. You ever hear yeah. that place? Oh, yeah. They're, <laughs> they're tastemakers. They're, they're hilarious. Um, I think Air One likely is covering my other pick, which is kind of close to home. We uh, we talk about the Midwest a lot here. We talk about the state of Michigan. And Casamara Amaro Club Sodas is a company that's based in Detroit, Michigan, and they describe themselves as uh, making leisure sodas, which I think is hilarious, but I actually kind of call them more like slightly watered-down version of bitters and soda. Yeah, which is like such a classic, delicious combination. It's definitely one of my other go-tos. I forgot to mention that at the top. I, I think a good bitters and soda, even if it's like Angostura, it's got that really nice color, and it makes you feel it like gets the appetite going. And these uh, these Casamara Club sodas are based on the Amari tradition in Italy, the aperitivo and digestivo drinks that you're gonna get uh, before or after the meal. The Negroni is a really good example of one of those. And I like the the Alta and the Como, which is more of a mandarin orange flavor. They come in cans and bottles. They've got a really cool design, a, a kind of a mid-century design. Love those Casamara Club sodas. Yeah, they're very beautiful aesthetically. Great gift to give people. 
So Anna, are you enjoying NA knowing that you're you're more of a, a spirited uh, drinker when it comes to drinking? Do you actually reach for NA? Yeah, every once in a while. So I've actually been really impressed with NA beers lately, like in <laughs> really? the last year or so. Yeah. I NA know, beers, like O'Doul's. It makes you laugh because you picture like the can of O'Doul's on the grocery store shelf that's like dusty and lukewarm and nobody's <laughs> touched it in years. But there are actually all these cool breweries now making NA beers. Like Brooklyn Brewery got in on it. McKellar, Brewdog, Lagunitas even. Oh, nice. Lagunitas has one. I mean, McKellar, of course, the the Danish uh, brewing company. Yeah. Nice. And Athletic Brewing, which is like actually a whole brewery dedicated to NA beers. They're doing really cool stuff. And like especially bringing in some of the complexity and bitterness that you get from hops that doesn't really require alcohol to kind of like shine. So yeah, there are a lot of cool options out there right now. I'm really interested in this category because I've never actually had an NA beer. I mean that legitimately. Um, I've I've seen the branding for Athletic and I think it's cool, but you feel like you're getting the the kind of vibe or the 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 backbone of a beer without the alcohol. Yeah, and there's something about, like, you know, standing around sipping from a can or a bottle that feels like you're kind of participating in the party a little more, maybe. You know what? I'm going to try some. I, I feel like I haven't I haven't done it. Um, I hate, like, the super hoppy beers. I sound like – I feel like my, like my mom says that. I don't want that hoppy beer. Well, okay, one thing that my – make you a little happier is a lot of a lot of like really classic beer brands too like guinness is starting to make non-alcoholic beer labat blue that's some real buffalo shit right there whoa that i think of labat blue as hockey beer absolutely hockey beer it's like what you sip during a you know intense hockey game like the canadians versus the red wings exactly have you ever been to a montreal canadians game no i haven't well i have let me tell you about this one there's no game in sports like going to a Canadians hockey game. They're serious about it there. They are more than serious. They're, it's like going to a Ohio State-Michigan game every time, and that's in reference to a big rivalry and the most like spirited type of college football game for those non-college football fans. I went. They have cheerleaders in the audience, in the crowd, for the, a hockey game. That seems almost manipulative to, like, plant them in the audience. <laughs> I know. It was weird. We were, like, in this cheer section, and, and they were all there. And hell, yeah, they were serving Labatt's Le, Blue there at that game. Yeah. Weird. Well, you know, you can have that experience now, even as a non-drinker. Definitely. I'm going to try it. Yeah. Let me ask you, though, like, when people do have seltzers, like, the only option, hmm. what are the best flavors and types of seltzer? that people can stock up on. For me, I'm a polar guy. I like polar in the in the plastic bottles. I know right the letters plastic's not good. But I like the polar bottles, the plastic bottles of polar. I'm a lemon, then lime, then berry, then tropical fruits. That's my hierarchy. How about you? Have you tried the polar vanilla flavor? Absolutely not. Vanilla <laughs> as a flavor outside of vanilla yogurt to me is 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 like sacrilege, is terrible. I don't like anything vanilla outside of vanilla yogurt. That's so crazy. Well, anyways, <laughs> uh, you should give it a try. <laughs> so it's it, good, you're saying. Sorry, it, I, I stole that good. one. It's good. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically good? like if you can picture cream soda, but not cloyingly sweet. 
Wait, did you were you into vanilla Coke? Oh yeah, definitely. See, I love that fake vanilla flavor. That fake vanilla flavor, man, it's not it doesn't vibe with me. I I, I, I do respect these alt um flavors of, of sparkling water. You ever have a Canfield's chocolate soda? No. All right. Well, that's that not sounds re- gross. It's really, really, really gross, but also really, really good at the same time. Um, my grandmother used to have them in Highland Park, Illinois, uh, under her uh, under her sink, and they'd been there for probably six years. <laughs> and so they were aged like a fine uh, Bordeaux, but they were they were flat and they were really, really, really terrible. But I, I remember those as a kid, and I, I love them. You know, the memory. She was ahead of the the curve with the NA drinks. She really was. Shout out Grandma Gert. Anyways, Matt, happy seltzer drinking, and I'll see you in the new year. Absolutely. See you in the new year. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.